Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's a pleasure to be here today among friends and colleagues and students. Uh, as I was seated upon the stand and uh, thinking about what I might say to introduce my topic, it dawned on me how things have come really full circle. It doesn't seem like it was very long ago that I was in your seats as a student here at the university. And interestingly enough for me personally is that I noticed that two professors that had profound impact upon my own education and eventually what I would do for a living were seated upon the stand. You've heard from one uh, who gave the opening prayer, Brother Don Cannon, a very important teacher in my life that directed my attention to the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and encouraged my pursuit of a degree uh, in that field and has been a kind mentor ever since. Additionally, upon the stand, Associate Academic Vice President Noel Reynolds here to my left. Uh, Professor Reynolds was one of my political science professors, and he had a profound impact on me in two ways. One, he was the first real professor to put blood all over my personal writing and shocked me. I thought you just had to have good ideas. I didn't know you had to write well. And he said, if you're going to go to graduate school, Richard, you've got to change. And that was one of the most stimulating experiences in my college career. And since that time, he's been a good friend and mentor. Today, I'd like to talk a few moments about the Second Coming, but specifically about two aspects to what I call related but separate issues. The first issue relates to the timing of the Second Coming, and the second to the emphasis we sometimes place on the prophecies that tend to highlight the terrible days and tribulation that lies ahead of the generation who witnessed this long uh, prophesied event. Often, and my students who are here get this ad nauseum in my classes, I come into class the first day wearing sunglasses, and so I'm going to put a pair of sunglasses on right now. To illustrate an important point, and this is where we'll begin today, all of us, whether we know it or not, wear a pair of glasses. The color, the tint of the lens is determined by our social economic background, our experience, our ethnicity, our gender, and also our religious convictions. Sometimes we go a long time without having our eyes checked, and therefore we wear glasses that have an old prescription. So not only do we have a tint of color in our glasses, sometimes they're out of focus. I remember one difficult year during graduate school. You can imagine starting a family uh, in a Ph.D. program, living on a shoestring budget. I broke a pair of glasses and decided that I couldn't afford a new pair. So I went about six months. Finally, uh, he went to the doctor, got a new pair on, and when I came out of his office, I literally stood on the sidewalk wobbling to get my perception back because my focus was so clear. And I said to myself, boy, I forgot that blades of grass can actually be discerned. Six months, my eyes had changed tremendously. Paul the Apostle put it this way. He said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. While the modern reader of the King James Version may not quite get the proper reading of the text from the 1611 language, we generally understand what he's saying. Let me put it in kind of modern English phrase. During mortality, Paul would say, 
we look into the ancient bronze mirror and see ourselves as a reversed and distorted image. Someday, however, we will see a perfect view of ourselves and the world. One of the purposes of what we do, worshiping together on Sunday, going to the temple, attending classes here at BYU, both in the science, the mathematics, humanities, arts, and religion, and all other fields of endeavor, and attending general conference, receiving blessings and counsel from our friends, is to get a better prescription. That is, to try to attempt to get a pair of glasses and to eliminate the artificial color and the blurring of our vision. Changing our glasses can impact the way we see the world. And so today, I would ask all of us to take off our glasses the way we generally look at the Second Coming and try to, prov uh, try to look through a new pair of lenses, which I pray will give us a better understanding. It has not been unusual for nearly every generation who has lived on the earth since the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ to believe that they might witness the terrible events immediately preceding the Second Coming and to be present at His coming. Apparently, even some first-century saints living in what we today would call modern Greece in the city of Thessalonica believed that the coming was immediate. Paul wrote this. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye sh should not be soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor letter by as from us, as to the day of the Christ is at hand. For this group, anxious about the event, Paul provides a list of some of the key events that must occur before the Lord's second advent. In other words, he exhorts them to be patient and not to be troubled about the timing of the second coming. Later generations were also anxious. In particular, some Christians greeted the turn of the first millennium after Christ with the belief that the end of the world was at hand. Apparently, there were even some Christians who sold all their possessions, dressed in white clothing, and waited in a prayerful attitude in fields outside their cities as the church bells tolled the new millennium. For the last 25 years of personal study, beginning during my undergraduate training here at BYU and continuing on through graduate school and to the present, I have come to realize that even during our glorious dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of time, there have been many Latter-day Saints who believe they might witness the Second Coming. For example, some saints living in the 1860s believed that the great American Civil War was the beginning of the end. Another group of saints thought that 1890 would be a decisive year. And still, another group of saints, members of the Church, were sure that the Great War that we now know as the World War I was the foretold destruction that immediately preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. Some of my parents' generation, the so-called greatest generation, believed that World War II was neither nothing more nor nothing less than the beginning of the destruction poured out upon all nations in preparation for the Second Coming. From my personal observation today, nothing has really changed since the days of Paul. Generation after generation, some of these people have become anxious about the timing of the Second Coming and therefore have misread all the scriptures as a result. The proliferation of popular books and tapes and firesides among the Latter-day Saints during the last 20 years of my adult experience demonstrates how fruitful our imagination has been when we attempt to interpret current political affairs 
in light of ancient and modern prophecy without proper context and also the authority to do so. The Internet brought a whole new way to stir the waters. Rumors about, uh, abound about a friend whose uncle knew a woman who worked in the temple who met a young missionary who was told by his patriarch that the elder would not finish his mission before the second coming. Certainly, the Internet has blessed our lives, but what a curse it has been as far as rumor-mongering is concerned, even among the Latter-day Saints. My generation was not immune from the effects of what I call the second coming fever. As a young missionary, some of us serving in the Italy-Milan mission speculated that 1974 would be a critical year and possibly the very year of the Second Coming. We were highly imaginative as we wove together a tapestry of various facts, including the fact that April conference of that year would be the 144th annual conference. <laughs> Some of you know that 144 is a scriptural number. And that the president of the church that would preside at that conference, who would be in fact sustained as a prophet, sir, and revelator in a special solemn assembly held on April 6, would be the 12th prophet. April 6, this date is filled with historical tradition. And on this year, 1974, it would be held on Sunday. What better day than for this, for the Lord to return to the earth to begin his millennial reign? The 140th annual conference, the 12th prophet, April 6, Sunday. You may laugh, but we took our wild speculation very seriously. Of course, the historical and spiritual uplifting conference has come and gone, and we are still here. Even today, I encounter scores of people who believe they will witness the Second Coming in their lifetime. For my part, I am now somewhat reserved and wiser and teach my students this guiding principle. One, they should buy life insurance. Two, they should put funds into a retirement program. And if they really want to be nice to their family, purchase a pre-need funeral program that includes a cemetery plot. <laughs> now, for many of my students, and some of them are here on the front row laughing, they know this story, the, list, the last bit of advice is a little morbid. They think I'm a little strange when it comes to that, because I often speculate, is the mortician who's going to take care of me? Is he practicing? Well, get on to more positive things. Live today as if you will meet Jesus this evening, but plan your life as though you will live to be 100 years old. A bright friend of mine always dreamed of becoming a doctor. However, during our undergraduate training here at BYU, he fell prey to the second coming fever and made a decisive decision in his life not to continue his education and apply to graduate school to a medical school. He reasoned, if the second coming is close, then I probably won't even have time to pay, finish paying off my, uh, my, my college debt bills, my loans, and in the millennium, I won't even have a job. Needless to say, my dear friend made a terrible mistake on two accounts. First, he was wrong to believe that the day Paul had talked about, as mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall ever be with him, and, be, and so shall ever be with the Lord. Second, and this may be the more important point for you and I today, he did not realize that the Lord expects us to live for the future, no matter what, what lies on our horizon. 
One of the best examples of this principle, to me, is the story of the Saints' effort to build the beautiful Nauvoo Temple on the banks of the Mississippi River in Illinois a hundred years ago. They knew that they were leaving for the great journey to the West, a land, a new land, far away. Yet they built the temple not only to receive their sacred ordinances, but they built it as though it would stand for years and decades to come. We need to live for tomorrow, no matter what comes today. This is continually reinforced as students come to me and ask questions such as, why should we plan for the future? Why should we finish our college education? Why should we have children when events so awful are about to descend upon us that the thought of these events can give even the most callous of us an upset stomach? There never seems to be a week following a major newscast from the Middle East that someone doesn't ask me, well, Professor Holtzaffel, is this it? Although I certainly do not know the day nor the hour, as the Lord himself said in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows that, I have learned to be careful in speculating about events associated with the Lord's glorious return, and also take into account all of the prophecies of the last days, instead of focusing on a few isolated passages while ignoring a host of others that provide a broader context of the last days. Certainly there is a lot of work to do, so I'm not over-anxious about the time or the coming of the Lord. The next aspect of hope I'd like to address, hope in our day and hope in the future. Another aspect related to the Second Coming is the pessimism often associated with events immediately preceding the days of the Lord. According to one dictionary, pessimism is an inclination to take the least favorable view as of events or expect the worst. In popular speech, one who is pessimistic is often one who sees the proverbial glass as half empty. During my life, I have encountered students, friends, and associates who have often shown various degrees of pessimism when discussing the Second Coming. In fact, an entry in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism says this, in Jew Jewish and Christian thought, there are two basic ways of viewing the coming of the Messiah. Some consider promises of a Messiah and millennial area as symbolic of a time when men and women finally learn to live in peace and harmony and the world will enter a new age of enlightenment and progress. No one individual nor one specific event will usher in that age. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, however, opposes this view and agrees with many other Christians and Jews who, who affirm that there is an actual Messiah, that he will come at some future time to the earth, and that only through his coming and the events associated therewith will all the millennial age of peace, harmony, and joy begin. The author continues. The scriptures, both biblical and modern, abundantly testify the era, that the era just preceding the second advent of the Savior will be perilous, filled with tribulation, and the time the devil shall have power over his own dominion. The resulting judgments upon the wicked are part of the preparations for the millennium. Although this description in Encyclopedia of Mormonism is certainly accurate in placing our doctrine of the Second Coming in context with what other Jews and Christians think about the coming of the Messiah, such a view without the proper context often provides the fertile ground for a growing pessimism regarding the time we live and in the future. And while I'm certainly no Pollyanna, I know something has gone terribly wrong with our planet. And I believe that the only ultimate hope for mankind, for humankind, is Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, I believe we need to be optimistic about the present and the future, as a bright future still awaits all of us as we approach the Second Coming. I have fallen prey to this pessimism from time to time, 
and have wondered whether the future holds any real promises in light of the great prophetic scriptures about the great and dreadful day of the Lord, as mentioned in Malachi chapter 4. I'm almost certain we could fill a large lecture hall on this campus if we were to choose a speaker who is willing to focus on the blood and fire, the carcasses and flies, the immorality, the wickedness, the, nat the natural and political upheavals of the time, and finally the death and destruction usually associated with the second coming. I'm almost also certain that if we had someone to address the basic doctrines of Christ, such as faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, we most likely would have a rather small showing in the lecture hall. The Second Coming is an exciting topic with sex and violence and intrigue as part of the main storyline. My generation and the one that has followed me, your generation, I call it the fast food generation. We need stimulation about every two minutes or we lose interest. I think that's about the pace of Sesame Street, which we raised our children on. So the exciting and highly violent nature of certain prophecies regarding the Second Coming tends to capture our imagination, while other topics seem boring. Speakers and teachers who desperately want to keep the attention of their students often resort to what I call Second Coming themes as a way to hold the attention of their audience. In this, I believe we do ourselves a great disservice. In the past, I have focused on the blood and gore prophecies provided my own students a glass is half full. I'm sorry for those failings and apologize to my students for providing an environment of anxiety, fear, and stress. The scriptures, however, offer another view of the last days. Let me provide you with an example of how one text can be read through different lenses as to provide one view of a glass being half empty and another view of the glass being half full. It is found in 1 Nephi chapter 14. I'm not sure how many times I've read this prophecy, the words of Nephi, describing a vision concerning the last days, but it's certainly legions. Nephi states, and it came to pass, well, not only those words, but what follows, that I behold the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few, because of the wickedness and abomination of the whore who sat upon the many waters. My good friend and colleague Stephen E. Robinson recently provided a thoughtful insight to this passage as it relates to the identity of the great and abominable church mentioned at this point. I, however, want to pay close attention to another phrase in the scripture, and its numbers were few. In seeing the glass as half empty, I have tended to emphasize the negative aspects of our times. The church is small because there are so many ungodly people doing ungodly things, and things will only get worse. It may be difficult for some students here today to visualize a church of only two million members, yet I vividly recall that day that was not too far in our past. The church membership has certainly grown beyond my wildest imaginations, and I've had to readjust my thinking on this topic. What does it mean to be small? To get a sense of my own experience, one needs to look no further than a wonderful article written by Professor Bruce Van Orden in the October 1999 Ensign, preparing the world for preparing for a worldwide ministry. Bruce, who is just a few years older than myself, tells a dramatic story of the church's growth between the period of 1951 and 1995 from his own perspective as a witness who's lived during these times. Even today, maybe some of you think of a church of 15 to 20 million may fulfill Nephi's vision of a, the church of the Lamb of God as being composed of a few members in comparison to the world's total population. Now let us reread the text and instead of seeing the glass as half empty, let's see it as half full. And it came to pass 
that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few because of the wickedness and abomination of the whore who sat upon the many waters. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth. 1 Nephi 14, 12. Notice the words, nevertheless, I beheld that the saints of God were also upon all the face of the earth. Now that provides a whole new way of looking at things. Relatively speaking, the member of the church could be considered small with 100, 200, or 600 million members in comparison to the world population. The key to interpret this verse may well be in exploring the idea that the church membership will be upon all the face of the earth. Not long after the church was organized, the Lord said this in Doctrine and Covenants section 65, Hearken and lo, a voice of one who is sent down from on high, who is mighty and powerful, whose going forth is unto the ends of the earth, yea, whose voice is unto all men. So even when we were a very small church, the Lord was telling us that our destiny is worldwide. A few weeks later, he said in November of 1831, now found in a revelation we call the preface, Doctrine and Covenants section 1, he said this, For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men and women, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated, and the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouth of my disciples, whom I have chosen in these last days, and they shall go forth, and none shall stay them. It seems reasonable to suppose that the Lord has a much larger plan than we sometimes see, because we tend to be myopic when it comes to God's continued and deep abiding love in others. We subconsciously assume that He has saved us, and that is all that really matters. Let us return for a moment to October 1831 Revelation. Doctrine and Covenants, section 65, verse 2. Following a brief but powerful introduction, the Lord says something quite marvelous. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on earth, and from thence the small hamlet, the small farm just outside a very small community in Ohio, from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hand shall roll until it has filled the whole earth. Of course, the imagery here in Doctrine and Covenants section 65 is based on the ancient prophecy found in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a colossal image was revealed to Daniel, Daniel in the book of Daniel. And of course, you remember that Daniel sees a, a stone cut out without hands, meaning by God, that rolled forth and eventually consumed the whole earth, and in the meantime, destroying the great image. Those passages, of course, are found in Daniel chapter 2. Since 1831, when the Doctrine Covenant section 65 was revealed, some members of the church have continually struggled to capture the large vision of how big the kingdom will be, our destiny. An example of this is found in Wilford Woodruff when he said, On Sunday night, the prophet called on all of us who held the priesthood to gather into a little log house they had there. It was a small house, perhaps 14 feet square, but it held the whole priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who were in the town of Kirtland. When we got together, the prophet called upon the elders of Israel with him to bear testimony of the work. In the, this meeting was Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and other great church leaders. When they got through bearing their testimonies, the prophet said this, Brethren, I have been very much edified and instructed in your testimonies here tonight. But I want to say to you before the Lord 
that you know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. You don't comprehend it. I was rather surprised, Wilford said. He said, it is only a little hand of the priest that you see here tonight, but this church will fill North and South America. It will fill the whole world. I'm not so certain that some of us are still like these early saints. We know no more concerning the destinies of this church and kingdom than a babe upon its mother's lap. We don't comprehend it. I certainly do not, but I'm beginning to get a picture. It began when I was a young missionary serving in the Italian-speaking Switzerland in northern Italy. The work was difficult, rejection was common, but the food in Italy was wonderful. <laughs> certainly large numbers of people were joining the church in Italy at the time in comparison to certain other European countries but it was not uncommon for missionaries to labor months upon months without witnessing the marvelous miracle of a conversion. I was very pessimistic about the Church's future in Italy. I knew, of course, the phenomenal success of the Church in Mexico, Central, and South America, but I was deeply concerned about Europe. At the time, the East Bloc, the former Soviet Union, and other Eastern European countries was closed to our active missionary work. In my lifetime, I never imagined that China, Africa, and Greece would ever have congregations of saints worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, ironically, we still believed that the Second Coming was near. We simply did not comprehend the Lord's timetable in this matter, nor the scope of His intended work during the time preceding His advent. Sometimes, in rather dramatic fashion, things changed. The revelation on priesthood in 1978 and the demise of the Soviet Union dramatically changed the boundaries of our missionary fields of labor. Who has not been grateful for the expansion of the work among our brothers and sisters across Africa? Eastern Europe, and elsewhere. Thrilling stories of a new generation of Mormon pioneers living in such places in Mongolia, India, and in nations unfamiliar to, um, unfamiliar to myself, such as the island chain of Kiribatis, K-I-R-B-A-T-I, are just, spiritual, uh, just as spiritually exciting and stimulating as almost any story from the first 100 years of the Restoration. In 1997, I began a year of service at the BYU Jerusalem Center for New Earth and Studies. During the following year, we met with members of the Church from various nations on the earth, from various ethnicities, living, working, and worshiping in the Holy Land. A real surprise was to discover a branch composed of native members of the Church, some who had been returned missionaries, been endowed in the Temple, living in Jordan, on the West Bank, and in Israel. Since then, along with other professors, David Seeley, Jim Toronto, and Paul Hoskinson, I have spoken to members of the Church who have gathered together for weekly worship in Lebanon and in Cyprus. It was in Cyprus that my story comes full circle. One of my assignments during my mission was in a beautiful city by a lake in the mountains of southern Switzerland, Lugano. It is a paradise, Swiss yogurt, Swiss chocolate, and heated buses during the winter. While there, I became friends with Trafford and Fernanda Cole. They lived in Italy, but visited southern Switzerland often. My companion, Elder Chris Meacham, and I spent long hours with them visiting together in Lugano. Nearly a year later, I was transferred to Padova, Italy near Venice, the great uh, university city where Galileo taught. There, my companion, Elder Steve Smoot, and I worked closely with the Coles. They both played an important role in the small branch of the Church. They were young and enthusiastic about the gospel. If they were pessimistic about the Church's future in Italy, they never showed it to me. Recently, some 25 years later, I rushed, into a van, rushed from a van into a small rented hall in Cyprus where Professor Seeley and I were to speak at a missionary fireside. The missionaries had placed an ad in the local newspapers announcing, two American university professors will speak on the life of Paul. 
Paul had visited the island nearly 2,000 years ago, and now we were there to talk to members and non-members of the church about his life and ministry. As we made our way into the building, we were introduced to some of the local members, visitors, and guests, missionaries serving on the island. I was impressed with the group of young elders and sisters. They were assigned to the Athens-Greece mission and were serving at this time in Cyprus. They came from many lands, including Canada, England, Sweden, Germany, and France. But as the group opened, there he was. Elder Cole. Yes, it was the son of Trafford and Fernanda Cole, the young couple I had known previously in Italy. Elder Cole was a second-generation Italian, speaking modern Greek as a Latter-day Saint missionary in Cyprus. Of course, my story can be duplicated dozens of times by many of you here today. My students are returned missionaries from California, Chile, France, Russia, Mongolia, India, Korea, Montana. My colleagues serve as mission presidents throughout the world. Places that seem closed forever are now open by the hand of the Lord. The gospel is spreading across the nations of the earth. And while we're relatively few in number, nevertheless, the destiny of this church is such that before the Lord's coming, there shall be saints upon all the face of the earth. Additionally, I've come to appreciate the fact that good people from various nations and various religious traditions can and do and make a difference in the world. We must see these people as our allies and friends, work together to fulfill God's plan of a just and safe world for men and women, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, educated and non-educated. Surely there are good people to be found on the earth, not just among the Latter-day Saints. We are not alone and the number of good, honest people will increase on the earth. There's another important scripture that I believe will help us see the glasses half full instead of half empty. It is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. John sees those who will be saved in heaven and observes, and I beheld the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000. But that was not all who were saved. Verse 9 continues, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. How does my understanding of the gospel help me to appreciate this scripture? Well, I know that men and women become kings and priests, queens and priestesses through the ordinances of the house of the Lord. If we take this passage literally, and I certainly do, then the restored gospel of Jesus Christ must spread to all nations, kindred, tongues, and peoples, and those people who accept the gospel must be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enter into the temples of the Lord to receive all ordinances therein that allow them to receive the fullness of the priesthood. Have you and I not witnessed the expansion of temple building in our own time to match the internationalization of the church? There is a sense that we are just beginning this work, especially when listening to President Hinckley in the last April conference. He said, the work of temple building goes on throughout the world. It is wonderful but we are not satisfied. We will keep on working to bring the temples to the people. I have said before that the blessings of the temple represent the fullness of the priesthood of which the Lord spake when he revealed his will to Joseph Smith. For those who have not been careful to examine ancient and modern prophecy together instead of isolating certain passages, for those who have been careful, it does not surprise us that while we are most certainly living in the last days, notice the name of our church, we still have much work to do. President Young said, there will be thousands of temples. We are witnessing the beginning of the fulfillment of Joseph Smith's vision when he says, our missionaries are going forth to the different nations. The standard of truth has been erected. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from going forward. In our own time, President Hinckley said, 
this is just a beginning. So that I will not be misunderstood, let me say that I'm aware of the challenges we face as individuals, as a society, and as a nation, as a church. I remember very well Jesus' own words on the night he was betrayed. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have witnessed such things in my own family, among my friends, and among the saints, as I've served in various church callings. Additionally, in the triumphal vision that we've just quoted from John, we were reminded of the difficulties that plague us in mortality. When asked to identify who these kings and priests were, these queens and priestesses from every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, he saw in the vision, John said he did not know. The angel of the Lord told him, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Certainly, we are mortal. We do face challenges. But we need to see the glasses being half full. You might recall the words of Elder Neil Maxwell. Yes, there will be wrenching polarization on this planet, but also a remarkable reunion with our colleagues in Christ from the city of Enoch. Yes, nation after nation will become a house divided, but more and more unifying house of the Lord will grace this planet. Yes, Armageddon lies ahead, but also, but so does Adamandayaman. He added, his work proceeds forward almost as if in the comparative calmness of the eye of the storm. First he reigns in the midst of the saints, soon in all the world. Truly, in Christ Jesus we find hope and pray for his return when God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, love and marriage, and the prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.